Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry, only on bluenile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands, all hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Every day, hundreds of thousands of us are building a future we can all be proud of. For over 36 years, the growth CBUS My Super Investment Option has returned an average of 8.98% per annum for its members, while investing in projects that not only create jobs, but a better future. CBUS, for all of us. To consider if CBUS is right for you, go to cbussuper.com.au for a PDS. Past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. This is the final word, story time with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. It is story time because this is the weekend show, the one where we take a wander through the leafy glades of cricket history and point out some interesting shrubs along the way. Look at that one over there. It has interesting coloured leaves. Uh, this one produces a star-shaped fruit. We, we look at stories uh, from the long distant past and stories from the recent past and occasionally stories from the future or stories that might not have happened at all. Uh, welcome to another leisurely stroll, Adam. Thank you. I, I make a quick stroll each morning with Winnie at the moment. I'm not sure if I mentioned mm-hmm. this in our update a couple of weeks ago, but when walking to nursery, so I just carry her there because it's not worth getting a stroller out for three or four minutes or whatever. But she has one colour in her and that's purple. Mm-hmm. And every time she passes a purple flower on a bush or whatever mm-hmm. it is, she'll go, purple, purple. And now purple. she'll stop yep. to sniff it on the way through. There's one bush with some <laughs> with something purple hanging off it and she'll want to sniff it each day, which I think is incredibly cute. So there's both a Winnie update and an add-on to the idea of us picking out interesting things, which we will throughout the course of this episode as well, I hope. The botanicals, you know, um, every time you buy a, a gin that's too expensive 
to warrant it, its existence. It always talks about botanicals. That's the thing that gets you over the line. That's that's what bumps you up, you know, from the from the mid forty dollars to the mid sixty dollars. If you can put botanicals on the on the label, if it's Gordon's, they're just like you know, you can clean your windows with it. Um, anything else, botanicals. I went to lunch with uh, with Norcross and Ellie and Henry the other day. A few of our colleagues from the BBC, and uh, I had to leave early in order to get Winnie from their three as it happens, and got a message from Daniel later informing me of, of what we'd racked up in, in the way of the bill. What would have been ordinarily, because we're so conditioned over here at the moment not going to lunch, having you know a bottle of wine from the supermarket, which over here, as you know, is pretty cheap. We weren't expecting sort of six quid wine, as it might be in, in the Tesco, to be sort of 46 quid gotcha. over the pub counter, but that it was, and we had no idea until after the fact, after making quite a dent in, in the wine collection at that said pub. So <laughs> <laughs> made for a, a much more expensive lunch than we anticipated, but no regrets. No, well, you know, when you've when you've been saving up all of those um, uh, that emotional expenditure, then that's right. It it can't be held back. It, it must be it must be let loose. You've been keeping an eye on the numbers, the the non nerd pledge related numbers during the week. Oh yes, yes. Uh, well, this was nice. So the iTunes charts really do sort of bounce around. It's hard to get a read on um, one week to the next based on what we see compared to what appears. But nonetheless, on Sunday, we went back to the top of the all-time cricket charts. So the most listened to podcast according to that measure, or at least the, the highest charted podcast. I don't think it captures total listens, but whatever it is, we're number one again. So I, I suppose we can thank Ellie for that, for that <laughs> boost that we would have got from a lot of people finding our podcast for the first time last week through our channel chat with her and it might be the case this week too with uh David Bumble Lloyd having featured on our weekly show. So if you're new to Storytime having found us via the interview show that that's nice. Stay for a while. Mm, yep, yeah, you know, put your feet up by the fire, all the rest of it. It's getting starting to get pretty wintry here in Melbourne as we come into May. Um not not the same as a UK kind of winter, but it's there. It's going to be happening pretty soon. There were the, the breath plumes were out and about tonight and that sort of thing. Mm. So we're on the way. I always remember when March. I, yeah, when living in Canberra, it was always the federal budget. That's when winter really mm. started. And of course, the budget was a couple of nights ago. It's the time of year where we'll record down the Zoom screen and we're both wearing hoodies or we're not, we're not wearing, <laughs> n- neither of us are wearing a blanket, as is sometimes the case, or wearing yep. a, a cape, a caped blanket, really, which, which was your fashion choice last year during your winter, <laughs> your long, cold, lonely winter during lockdown. And as was the case with me a few weeks ago when it felt like it was way too chilly for the cricket season to begin but it's just temperate enough that a hoodie will do the trick mm-hmm. all right good stuff hoods up let's uh let's swagger into some cricket history shall we uh, and please we'll do it via the medium of nerd pledge nerd pledge the game that we play with people on our patron page they support the show by playing this game. And the game requires them to send us a, a little amount of currency or if they want a big amount, but they don't have to. You know, any amount will do as long as it's a number that in some way relates to cricket. And we don't know what the link is. And the game is that we have to figure it out. 
This is how the game works. So, for instance, if you want an example of that in practice, a la uh, spelling bees, where you can ask the uh, adjudicator to use it in a sentence, we might say, here is Matt Smith. Now, that does sound like that's just a generic name that I've made up um, in order to have an example, like in the (laughs) ATO booklet, where they're like, Matt Smith uh, has an income of $65,000 a year. Uh, Matt Smith's partner has an income of $45,000. So... Uh, look, Matt Smith is real. Um, Matt Smith has played Nerd Pledge. Thank you, Matt Smith. $3.17 is the Matt Smith number. And so that means that three seventeen, in some way, whether it's 31.7 or 317 or any variation, 317 is a cricket link and we need to work it out. And Matt, in this case, has sent us a clue. He doesn't have to, but he has. And the clue is one of the most impressive known hungover efforts in first-class cricket. Yes, thank you, Matt Smith, who, yes, he's played Nerd Pledge. He also played uh, Prince Philip in uh, a couple of seasons of The Crown. Oh, yeah. He was also an actor in the television show. When I worked in politics, a lot of people would ask, what's more real life, like, you know, The West Wing or The Thick of It or Veep or whatever. I'd always point them towards a BBC show that was made, only one season of it, but it was called Party Animals in about mm-hmm. sort of 2007, something like that. Because it was so realistic, needless to say, it got cancelled pretty quickly, but Matt Smith was also in <laughs> that. His clue uh, could also relate to politics too about hungover efforts so 317 it's been made a few times in professional cricket one of those was wally hammond in 1936 now we know how much wally loved to party uh, in the mid-20s in the caribbean but i think he got himself sorted out by the mid-30s so we might put a line through that one um, well, might have might have um, thought better of it after um, <laughs> after some of the after effects of partying. Mm. He liked to party, party. But no, in the end, it's fairly straightforward because Ken Rutherford was one of the three men to make a three seventeen uh, in first class cricket, and this is a, a decorated example of batting with a hangover. So, but there's lots of bits and pieces here which you're going to love, Jeff. Okay, w- w- let's go to 1986. It's New Zealand's tour of England, and they go up to Scarborough, Scarbados, uh, for the final game of their tour. The tour where they well, they won their first test match over here, I should say, as well. So it went pretty well for them. Oh, it's an omen. It's an omen. Do you think they'll be asked, do you think the New Zealand side, when they land in England, will be asked, you know, do you think you, you, you've picked up some momentum from the 1986 <laughs> tour? Um, will that give some confidence to the lads <laughs> when you think back to 86? <laughs> I did note yesterday, Jeff, within minutes of us hitting stop on our recording uh, with the Bumble interview that BJ Watling retired from international cricket, which would have been Mm. uh, certainly a topic we would have canvassed maybe next week. He's going to be here in England for those three test matches, the two against uh, the hosts Mm. and one against India in the World Test Championship final. But that's all for next week. For now, um, we're going to 86. So... Ken Rutherford, it must be remembered, had a pretty dreadful start to his test career. He got completely worked over by the West Indies, I think in 1983 or 1984, something like that. But now he, he'd really found his stride in this really sort of productive tour for them overall. Yeah, as I say, this was the final game of it in September. And they were playing against the Brian Close Eleven. Now, Jeff, the, the Brian Close 11, you, know, you talk about first-class teams that maybe shouldn't have had that status. This team certainly had the, the players in it that should, but the idea that 
the, a, a former England captain just had a team named after him and they would mm. be able to play against the, the tourists of that particular summer. Seems odd now, um, looking back at it three and a half decades later. Anyway, New Zealand were playing against them. We'll come back to close in a moment. And they made 519 for seven in 94 overs. So a really decent clip against an attack that included, for Brian Close's team, Chris Old, Franklin Stevenson, who took the better part of a 1,000 first-class wickets, and Dilip Doshi. So they were pretty handy, but Rutherford went bananas. So he hit Doshi for four sixes at one stage, and uh, he went on to strike 100 before at, lunch. At, at once, like four sixes in a Con- row. Consecutively, yeah. He was on track right. for the six sixes and then didn't quite come off. He made 100 before lunch. He made 101 not out at lunch, to be precise, and made 199 further runs between lunch and tea. So he was an even 300 at the tea break, would you believe? He went on to finish on 317 just after the tea break, 245 balls to get there, just 230 minutes. So he was really galloping along eight sixes and 45 fours. Um, It remains the highest score for a New Zealand player overseas. But yes, the hungover reference, the night before it was Willie Watson's 21st birthday. And Ken Rutherford mm-hmm. got on the gas and he really battled so much so that at the lunch break when he was on 101, he spent the whole 40 minutes sleeping in the dressing room. <laughs> so he already had that, a ton to his name. That's what I was ask about was, was how hungover are we talking? Because obviously it's easy to quantify the number of runs and the number of minutes and the sessions, but it's much harder to quantify hangovers. And, mm. and we... I, I feel that those of us who've um, investigated this part of existence thoroughly, we know the range. We understand the oh, yeah. the sort of symphony of the hangover, I suppose, that, you know, everywhere from the, the quiet sort of background, you know, the flutes trilling and maybe a bit of timpani right up to the, the full Tchaikovsky with the fucking cannons going off. Um, there, can, there can be a, a large range of experience. And so, you know, I'd, I'd be curious to know what we're dealing with. But the fact that he walked in for the 40-minute break and went straight to sleep tells me it's a decent hangover. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if, it, if it's assuming it's, you know, one o'clock and he's already got 100 runs next to his name, you've you got to be had a pretty decent tilt the night before if your first instinct is yeah. not to celebrate the runs but to, to sleep off the, the night before. The most hungover I reckon I've seen you, Jeff, was in 2015 when we'd been out heavily the night before and you more heavily than me you, you kicked on for, till about six in the morning or something like that and we had to go to the honorable artillery company the next day to do the um was it a guerrilla oh, yeah. cricket thing we were doing for them yeah, we were doing and it was the authors 11 um, of a live match yeah it was a live game and the authors were playing against a charity team like can't recall who they were playing against specifically, but a beautiful setting. And we had to get the tube from Ealing, where we stayed the night before at Vicious Place. And you, on tube, no seat, all the way into the middle of London, I thought at any moment here, this is going to end very badly. But you somehow managed Mm. to keep it together until we got to the ground Mm. and then emptied out, I think, (laughs) quite spectacularly, if I recall correctly. I, yeah, I remember that. Um, That's right. That that was, it was a night where... um, I was out with you lot and, and at the point that you were saying, let's go home, I'd started talking to some really drunk Russians at the That's pub right. and then they said <laughs> they were going to a nightclub and somehow I ended up in a car with like four very Russian Russians who were, you know, they were up for a, a good one um, and, and I just was caught up in the tide. Um, yeah, and it wasn't as though we were leaving early. I think it was about three o'clock by this point we were, yeah, we were putting a... Yep 
putting a pin in it. But anyway, so we've got some sense of the, the Rutherford scale that day. Mm-hmm. So I mentioned it's the highest score any New Zealand players made overseas. I didn't mention that Brian Close also had in his team uh, Jeff Boycott, Java Biandad, who made a century in the second innings for Close's 11. Any information on the headwear on and on Java Biandad's hat? <laughs> yes. Well, I suppose that's two years before he wore the I Love New York hat. Um, when making a test double century. But here's the last bit for you. So Brian Close, this was his last first-class game at age 55. So he mm-hmm. debuted all the way back in 1949, was an England captain in, in the mid-60s. But mm-hmm. after he finished in Somerset in 19. 19- 79. He kept these one-off games happening through the mm-hmm. early part of the 80s, and this was the last of those. So he made 22 and 4 in his 786th first-class outing, and it was against the touring New Zealanders where Ken Rutherford made his 317. So maybe it was the fact that he had to, to see the ball uh, travelling over the rope as often as he did on the first day that he's like, you know what, I've had enough of this. But yes, played until age 55. Had, wasn't playing, you know, wasn't playing county cricket at that point. He, he, I suppose he would have retired at age Forty nine from from that caper, but still a a super long career, one of the longest in professional cricket. Uh, and was still getting first class status for those runs while making yes. twenty two and four in his final <laughs> game. Viv Richards against Dennis Lilly in World Series cricket. No, no those weren't first class runs. Brian Close against presumably hungover Ken Rutherford bowling part time <laughs> filth. Sure, add those four runs to his first class tally. Ah, uh, it's a scandal. It's a scandal. I don't know who's to blame for it, but somebody is. Someone's got to sort it out. So Matt Smith, uh, Ken Rutherford's hungover 317. That is your nerd pledge number. Uh, That is our guess. Let us know. Drop us a message and tell us what is up. Next up, we've got 228 from Vivek Arcot. Now, the clue here is that it's a Nawab-esque contribution, Jeff. Yes, Nawab-esque, meaning... Relating to one of the two Nawabs of Pataudi, Iftikhar Ali Khan and Mansur Ali Khan, who both played test cricket for India. The older Nawab played test cricket for England as well. Why not? You could do that in those days. Just wander about, play for whoever you felt like. I like how you went with Nawabs of Pataudi there, by the way, like attorneys general Mm. or governors general, Nawabs of Pataudi. Yes, courts marshal, uh, attorneys general. Um, And, you know, it's about the plural on the noun and then the the hanging um, modifier, I suppose, <laughs> is, is, is what you'd call it. So the Nawabs were, you know, they were they were royals. They ran a tight ship in Petaudi, which is no longer a, a royal principality. But the first Nawab played through until 1946. And so it, it did, I did think there might be a slight link there that the very next year, Lala Amanath, who was not a royal but was was something of Indian cricket royalty, made an innings of 228 at the MCG playing a, a very good Victorian side. Neil Harvey, Sam Loxton, Lindsay Hassett was captaining that team. Ken Mulham and Ian Johnson, who went on to become Australian test captain. Uh, Doug Ring, always a good name, Doug Ring. Uh, kicked him straight in that, Doug Ring. So Lalo made 228 in an innings where the rest of his top six made 35 runs between them. So <laughs> he was on track for a filthy Bannerman, like an absolute massive Bannerman. But the tail kicked in with him and, and they put on two big partnerships and got the score to 403. Still, 228 not out out of 403 is about 55%. It's still pretty good going. 
But, you know, that, that gave the Indian touring side a, a big lead, but they couldn't quite get the wickets before time ran out. But, you know, still a, a big moment standing up on a, a tough tour in 1947-48 when the Indian test side was getting bashed up by Don Bradman's lot every time they rocked up in a test match. But Lala Amanath, not a royal per se. I mean, I know you like a big tour match innings at the MCG, so I thought it was worth, worth mentioning. No, it's good. It's good. It's a, I think it's a worthy contender. I mean, there have been other 228s made by Indians in, in first-class cricket. I wonder whether one of those might tick the Nawab box. I mean, I doubt it because I feel like I know all of the names, but, I mean, that mm. might be the link. Well, I was looking for links with royalties. Yeah. So, yeah. We, so we're looking for 228. And we could look at Vijayananda Gajapati Raju Sir Maharaj Kumar of Vizanagram, a.k.a. Vizi, who was the extremely bad at cricket Indian test captain in the 1936, I think it was, who went to England with a, a touring side that he'd bankrolled and thus was allowed to pick himself <laughs> and <laughs> batted about nine and didn't bowl. As far as links to 228, he did make 1,228 first-class runs. <laughs> Um, at an average of 18, thus indicating why he probably shouldn't have been in that test side. But that's a little tenuous. But innings of 228, there have been three of them made in the Ranji Trophy, yep. including one by RJ Jadeja, who we've talked about on the show before, and another one made in the Dulip Trophy by Sunil Gavaska. The interesting thing here is that the Ranji Trophy is named after Ranjit Sinji, who played in the early 1900s and eventually left cricket in England and went home to India to become Colonel His Highness Shri Sir Ranjit Sinji Vibhaji Maharaja Jam Sahib of Nawanag. Very much a royal ruler. And the Dulip Trophy is named after his nephew, Kumar Shri Dulip Sinji, who was also a brilliant cricketer and also a member of the royal family. So is there a link there that the two... Premier competitions in India are named after Royals and 228 was made in those competitions. Perhaps. Perhaps. We'll see. I'm sure Vivek will let us know on 228. Thank you for your re-pledge. Of course, if you've already pledged like Vivek and, and you want us to have another go, simply edit your number and get back in the queue with everybody else. Jeff, who's next? Who's next? Lakshmi Govindasamy, who has come in with Euros, uh, adding a, a little touch of class and culture to proceedings. <laughs> Three Euros, 79 Euro cents. Uh, no, no hints, no direction. So 379 is an open field for you, Adam. Do with it what you will. Okay, so I didn't see the Euro link, and had I have, I, I might not have done what I have, but here we are. 379 is the cap number of a pair of Collins, one being okay. Colin Miller. But we talked about uh, the Funk Master General a couple of weeks ago, so I thought we'll, mm-hmm. we'll steer clear of that. And the other being, uh, of course, uh, Michael Colin Cowdery, uh, who was England Test Player 379 when he made his bow on the 52-53 uh, mm-hmm. tour of Australia. And I feel like with Colin Cowdery, Jeff, we, ref- we, we sort of refer to him quite a bit, but I've never really told his story. I thought this might be a good opportunity for that. No, he is the Keith Miller of England in that, you know, a a very famous, well-regarded cricketer who we hadn't done the full tale on. We talked about Keith Miller recently and we could talk about 
CC today, the initials MCC, of course, for a, a very posh, very English cricketer. Absolutely. So, well, going back to the start, he's born in 32, which in a way is a great year to be born because it means you missed the entire war as far as service is concerned. He was at school through the Second World War. I mean... <laughs> well, yeah, he was seven when it started. Yeah. So, I, mean, I mean, you're coming it'd out... It'd be a bit rough if they were like, <laughs> all right, on the boat, you're going to Normandy, son. <laughs> well, I, well, I think well, that's kind of my point, right? I mean, if, if you're born in 1922, you're probably right in the teeth of it. Mm. You're not going to get through six years of conflict without being called upon at some stage or another. But no, he was born Michael Colin Cowdery in Madras in 1932, mm. where his dad had a plantation. He learned cricket, and it was sort of a, it was a fait accompli that he was going to end up being a cricketer. Like, it's one of these stories where he had a bat in his hand from the moment he could walk, that kind of thing. And sure enough, by the time he returned to England, went to boarding school, ended up at Oxford, and, you know, we kind of... You can imagine the familiar route that that takes for an aristocratic family and and what he was able to achieve as far as getting into Oxford. Mm -hmm. And by 1951, I mean, he's playing for Oxford. He's making loads of runs. He's capped by Kent at age 18, the youngest player to get formally capped uh, by that particular county. And Mm -hmm. as a consequence of that, he gets taken to Australia in 1954-55, despite having never made a a century uh, for Kent and having never played a test match. I actually said before that he made his bow in 1952. That was wrong, of course. It was 1954 was when he got his first Mm. test match. He gets into that team at the very start after some fine performances in the tour games and makes his debut Mm -hmm. at Brisbane. But at Melbourne... It's where he makes his first big mark in international cricket. It's against Miller and Co., who you mentioned before. Australia are right on top early on. They've got England like 40 for four, and Cowdery strikes the 100 that he is later always benchmarked against. It's like his most classical 100 as the 22-year-old or whatever he was at the time uh, was seen as something very special. So Mm. that's his first test century on that tour under Peter May. It must have been in 54-55 when they win the Ashes in Australia, which is no mean feat. First time of asking for Cowdery. Pressing fast forward to 57, that's the 411 run, record 411 run stand with Peter May that we've talked about a number of times on Storytime because it's the first test on Test Match Special uh, at Edgbaston there against the West Indies. Captaincy follows soon enough in 1960. He's given the job for the first time in a sort of stand-in capacity against uh, South Africa Mm -hmm. and again in 1961 uh, when Peter May uh, is finally finished. But he's sick in the defining test of that series. So 1961 at Old Trafford when we know that Benno bowls them out Mm -hmm. on the final day, but uh, Cowdery isn't there and a lot of people say that that was a, a big part of the series, the fact that he wasn't able to play in what turned to be the, the, the match of the series. As in missed the test match or, yeah. or became sick during the test no, match? No, he missed the whole thing, so he had to be uh, replaced. I think mm. Ted Dexter replaced him as he did as captain right. in 1962, uh, and then Mike Smith in 1963 to 66, Brian Close 66-67, so for a time there he goes back to being a member of the ranks, makes loads of runs, but he isn't actually the captain, which says a little bit about English cricket, I suppose, at the time that they, <laughs> they picked their captain sort of series on series or tour on tour. It wasn't like you were the English captain. It was like you were invited by the MCC to mm. lead your team to this particular winter tour or whatever it was. So, right. And Cowdery got that invitation. And so, and so Brian Close, who we spoke about just before, is there 20 years before he's, you know, making yes. first-class runs <laughs> against Ken Rutherford. He's there captaining England in 1966. And even by that point, I suppose Close is in his mid-30s, isn't he? So towards the end of his international mm. career. Although he does come back and, of course, plays into his mid-40s famously against the West Indies. So 
so did Cowdery. Cowdery as well, yeah. He, he's another player who was recalled and had to do a tough job. But his next stint as captain is from 67 through to 69, and that captures the Ashes winning effort in 68. That was the series where he became the first player to reach 100 test matches. And in that match at Edgbaston against Australia, he, he made a century. So a massive moment in his career. Mm-hmm. And he also, and I didn't know this, he was he was the catalyst for the big mop-up at the Oval. So that final day, we all know what Derek Underwood does, taking seven for 50 with Australia bowled out with, is it six minutes to go or something like that, after the ground was inundated with water through the first half of the day. But it was Cowdery going into the crowd asking all the spectators to help uh, with the mop-up, which is why they were able to get on for that final session. Why don't they do that now? I mean, like you've seen how good the ground staffing is in places like Sri Lanka where they just have 300 blokes ready to get the covers on at, at any given time. And then it rains in England or Australia and, you know, there's a couple of tractors, but there are about 10 ground staff. Why not just get everyone in the crowd to come out? Get them in. Like, you know, give them all a tea towel. Sort it out. Don't mind it. Don't mind it. feels like that everyone in the crowd at Sri Lanka is often involved in that operation, given they cover the entire playing field. Cowdery was involved in the De Oliveira affair as he was captain at the time. So they leave him out for the 68-69 tour of South Africa initially on form, or so they say, before picking him later when there's an injury in the squad. Jared Kimber does a far better job at detailing that in his Double Century podcast last year, which I can strongly recommend. He's eventually replaced as captain by Ray Illingworth, which he was fairly shitty about um, Illingworth leads the side in, in the rest of the world games in, in 1970 but that's the year where even though he's not captain Cowdery gets to go back to Kent and lead them to their first victory in the championship since 1913 which was a, a an especially meaningful thing for him having played at the club for so many years and led them for so many years when he wasn't turning out for England and then there's the, the famous tour of 1970-71 which Illingworth leads them to victory in. But yeah, Cowdery's still part of it. Doesn't make a, a load of runs over there. Actually gets dropped during the series, but he played in 54-55 when they won, and then again in 70-71 when they won in Australia the next time, which gives you a sense mm. of his longevity. He wouldn't lead England again, but in the 27 tests where he did, Cowdery won eight and drew 15, but only lost four, which again sort of speaks to the sort of cricket that was played through the 1960s. Safety first. Yeah. Safety first. Yeah. Just put a big cricketing condom on before you <laughs> go out to play. It's, it's still a pretty it's good... full-body job. It's still a pretty good effort, though, when you consider he only lost four of the 27... And I mean, yeah, you can, you can, hmm. that's you can what go I mean. the other way, I, just, I suppose. Just go out there and don't lose. You know, that's what it's all about. It was on that trip uh, to Australia that uh, he formally overtook Wally Hammond's uh, 7,249 runs, which was the most in, in Test cricket at that time. Although he only held it for about a year until Gary Sobers overtook him. But there was a brief window when Cowdery mm. was the leading run scorer in Test cricket. He said his farewell to Tests in 1971 against Pakistan at age 38. Or so we thought. So he goes back to Kent, keeps playing there. In 1974, he hits his 100th 100 against Surrey, which was um, celebrated by going and spending time with the Prime Minister at the time and given a CBE and you get a sense of the sort of guy that Cowdery was and, and the links that he had. But then sort of after hitting that 100th century, the next winter, they're back off to Australia again for 74-75. And it's a brutal experience in Brisbane in that first test, as we know. So they just called for Cowdery. They said, can you make it out here? And, and he did. And within two days of sort of stepping off the plane, there he was 
<laughs> at the Wacker up against Tomo. Mm. He says to Thompson, nice to meet you. And Tomo replies, that won't help you, fatso. Piss off. <laughs> and he, can, he sort of mm. endures uh, what he had to through that series. And he finishes up at long last for real this time with his 116th and final test match at the MCG. That's where he takes the, the world record 120th catch as well. There was a banner hung off the MCG. MCG fans thank Colin six tours. He was the um, the first uh, mm-hmm. Englishman to tour Australia six times for the better part of seventy years. He ended up making seven thousand six hundred and twenty four runs at forty four twenty two centuries, which was a record for England until two thousand and thirteen, when Alistair Cook and KP both uh, reached twenty three. He made centuries at home and away against all six opposing Test nations at the time. He made a triple century against South Australia in sixty two sixty three, which remains uh, the highest score for an MCC or an England player in Australia and then he has his one last moment for Kent so in 1975 there's the World Cup instead of the South African tour and the Australians stick around and play some test cricket so in turn they play some county matches while they're there now Ian Chappell was so confident they were going to pump Kent after they set them 354 that on the final day he booked them a coach to leave at 4pm from Canterbury but no that wasn't going to work for Cowdery who rattled off 151 not out and they won by 6 wickets so that was one of the the last of his 107 first class centuries more than 42,000 first class runs in retirement he was the president of the MCC the chair of the ICC between 1989 and 1993 which notably was when neutral umpires came in he was knighted in 1992 he was made a life peer in the house of lords in 1997 of course and then in uh, in the year 2000 after having a stroke he, he died of a heart attack at age 67 there was a memorial that Westminster Abbey and only Leary Constantine Bobby Moore and Frank Worrell and Cowdery are the four sportsmen who've ever had a memorial service at Westminster Abbey which Hmm. gives a sense of the esteem he was held in John Woodcock the famous uh, cricket writer a line of his appears on his headstone some journey some life some cover drive some friend and to this day the spirit of cricket lecture that the MCC have is named the Cowdery spirit of cricket lecture which was announced in 2001 in tribute after he passed away the year before so uh, that is the story of the 379th test cricketer for england mc cowdery thank you adam a couple of things to note there maybe ian chapel booked the coach for 4 p.m because he knew they would concede the runs by then (laughs) yeah maybe arthur conningham was involved ideas man (laughs) who knows you know um and also i I like that the the banner mcg fans thank colin six tours it's very text message speak um (laughs) And whenever anybody just thinks that this is you know, some new invention of the younger generations, that, well, they've been doing it since telegrams. You know, you've got to get a large amount of information into a small space. It's very, yeah, that is like a text that you're like an elderly relative would send you and they're, they're typing with one finger and just trying to get the most out of it. All right, Jeff, big deep breath uh, after that. Thank you again to Laxmi for giving me the space to have that journey. The next number we have is yours. It's 124. It's Eric Pritchard. And there isn't a clue on this either. Have some fun. $1.24, right. Well, I mean, the logical thing you might do with this is look at innings. So, I know that we have a tendency to look at test cricket first and, you know, that that's because that's the format that we're most interested in. And there are lots of good test match 124s. Um, I, I could go and talk about Tom Horan, 
The Irishman, born in Cork, mm. who played in Australia's first test match and played again a few years later in 1881 and made 124 against England. Um, lots of other interesting scores. Ravichandran Ashwin's highest test score is 124 out of his, what has he got, five test centuries? I think he does, or yeah. Six. Was that, yeah, I think he's, I think it is. Four against the Windies and then that one against England. Yeah, when, the, when the pain blow-up happened at Brisbane, I remember there was a lot of sort of like, he's got four test tons, pain has got none. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, added to it at Chennai. <laughs> Can't wait to get you to the Gabba. Uh, um, right, yep. So, so it could be that Damien Martin made a nice one twenty four at Adelaide. In when was that? Two thousand or two thousand and one, maybe against South Africa. Yeah, it was. It was. Uh, it was in the in the two thousand and one two thousand and two series. Right. Yep. Um, Michael Clark at the same venue in the amazing Adelaide Test match of 2006. Guest of the show, Mark Butcher in Sydney in 03. That was a uh, fabulous innings. That was, he had to mm. get through. Brett Lee was bowling thunderbolts that morning, like as quick as I've ever seen him bowl, and also mm. shaping it beautifully. And you're just thinking, this has got Lee 5 for 15 written all over it first session, and Butcher got through that. Mm. And yeah, batted wonderfully. I was watching it from the hill, what, what was known as the Doug Walter stand at the time. Mm. Um, and yes, it's a shame we didn't. In hindsight, we should have actually spoke to Butch about that innings. But hey, we had other things mm. to go go through with him, and um, and I'm glad we did. Yeah, we um, we, we're never short of things to talk to someone about <laughs> when we discuss what we want to talk to them about before the show. There's always a lot more that ends up on the cutting room floor yes. um, in terms of the notes. Dave Warner made the 124 in Brisbane in 2013 to start off the, the whitewash ashes, which was a brilliant innings from him too after, you know, not not having the easiest time of it in England earlier mm. in 2013. But uh, I thought maybe move away from scores. I was interested that Glenn McGrath, Javed Meandad and Hashim Amla all played 124 test matches. Imagine like a Glenn McGrath and Javed Meandad face-off, you know, that there'd be some good stouching that would happen if they'd, if they'd come up against one another. The arguments could have got very interesting. Maybe, you know, Hashim Amlar is a dream dinner party guest. Seems like a pretty quiet dude. I don't imagine you'd get much out of Hash. Um, you know. Yeah, it might be, yeah, maybe if they were driving somewhere and uh, I'm sure Glenn McGrath would insist on driving, but Javit Mandad in, mm. in, the, uh, in, the, in the passenger seat and Hashim Amlar in the back just being a good boy. Might be how it is. Yeah, yeah. Maybe just listening to some music or something. Headphones in. Yeah, yeah. And they'd, they'd obviously be Java Mandad would be make, having some line about, you know, I could drive better than you, et cetera. Uh, <laughs> hey, cricket, driving, get it. But w- what I found that I was interested in is that those three have played 124 tests. Nobody has ever played 124 one-day internationals. And this You're is right. in men's and women's cricket. Now, if you look at the numbers of matches that people have played in one day, every number from one up until 98, somebody has played that many ODIs in a career. Nobody's played 99, presumably because no one's wanted to retire when they're on 99 and mercifully no one's been sacked having played 99. In other words, no one's got the Billy Brownless treatment on 198 yeah. games. Yeah, or the Ben Hilfenhouse 99 test yes. wickets. but. No one's got the 99 game. So Nick Knight played exactly 100, but no one's got 99. And then there's at least one player for every number after that as well, 101, 102, 103, and so on, all the way up until 124. So the first number that's had nobody uh, 
end up with that as their career tally. There might be a few current players in, in that mix as well who might be on numbers that they might move on from, but nobody has played 124 one-day internationals, and that is the kind of pointlessly... Uh, not very interesting shit that I find interesting. So, Eric Pritchard, <laughs> that's what I have for you. And if that is not your number, which is almost certainly the case, you can send me a message and give me a hint as to where I should be looking next. <laughs> Thank you, Eric Pritchard. Whenever you, I see your name, I think about three-time Hawthorne wingman Darren Pritchard. The next number we were sent in, Jeff, is Matt May's 506. And this didn't have a clue either. I've been enjoying this, I must say. We've had three numbers today that have come clueless initially, which doesn't mean the clues won't come subsequently. It just gives us a chance to mm. tell a story off the top and, and return to it with what might be what it's after later. Although in saying that, I reckon on this one, there aren't many options. 506, I mean, some numbers in the 500s come up all the time, but but not 506 mm. for whatever reason. It's only been made twice in international cricket. And as it happens, one of those... Innings was one that we were talking about like six weeks ago. It was what Australia made when uh, coming back hard against England in 1908 at Adelaide with Roger Hardigan on debut at number eight, making a test century along with a very ill Clem Hill who made 100 as well and that come from behind victory. And in many respects, it was a similar pattern in 1910. So just two years later, uh, when South Africa were touring Australia and they made 506 in their first innings. Now, this is another massive come-from-behind effort. So Australia were all out for 348 the first time around. And that looks a bit light on when you consider the Trumper, Bardsley, Hill, McCartney, Armstrong side made 348 and in response, South Africa make 506. And Jeff, that's principally due to Aubrey Faulkner, who made 204 batting at number three in just 315 minutes. So South Africa are way ahead in the test after Aubrey Faulkner, who we'll talk a bit more about in a moment, made that huge double ton. Second time around, Australia make 327. Trumper, 159. He's bowled by Faulkner, actually. The one wicket that Faulkner takes in the second innings. He was the ninth bowler turned to Aubrey Faulkner, despite having taken a test six for a couple of years earlier. Wow. And then South Africa are set 170 after being so far ahead in the game, and they're skittled uh, for 80. Bill Whitty took six for 17, and Timmy Cotter, one of your favourites, four for 47. So in the end, after making 506, they were defeated by 89 runs, which is a pretty big comeback, much as it was uh, in the Australia-England game two years earlier at Adelaide. But had they held firm there and won, they would have pulled level in the series at one all. In the end, they, they lose 4-1. They're thumped by the Australians. As for Aubrey Faulkner, I mentioned the, the double century. He ended up tallying 732 runs in the series at 73. He also made a century at Adelaide and five other scores above 50 along the way. So that was his best individual performance as a batsman for South Africa. All up, he played 25 test matches and only made two other centuries. So two of his four tons were, yeah, made on on that one tour. He took 82 test wickets at better than 27, including six for 17 in the first ever test match played at Headingley in 1907. His career was interrupted by World War One, which took away five years, which would have been still when he was playing because he, he cracked on and played a little bit after the war he formally retired in, in 1924. But tragically, he never really got over cricket being finished for him. And uh, six years after finishing up in 1930, he took his own life at the age of 48 at the school of cricket that was named after him. So 
a tragic end for uh, an all-rounder that, yeah, we, we come back to quite a bit, don't we, Jeff? Aubrey Faulkner, he's this sort of compelling figure and the standard bearer for South African cricket in that time. He's a Kimber favourite as well, if you're following along the, the Jared Kimber productions. There's... There are, there are many about Aubrey Fulton. Yes. But he's a fascinating player because he's a, you know, he's a leg-spinning all-rounder, um, but he's a brilliant bat as well. Um, but to, to be able to, to bat really well and also bowl over the wrist and, and flummox players, I think that's a, that's a very sexy combination <laughs> of attributes because having one of those things is pretty good, but having both of those things is pretty difficult. It's Faulkner, Kadich and um, not many others. Yeah, I mean, the idea of batting number three and bowling leg breaks. I remember when Marnus Labuschagne was brought in um, to the test team at Sydney against India a couple of summers ago, and Sam Perry, our friend from Great Cricketer Podcast, said he's pretty much living the leg spinner's dream or the boyhood dream of batting three for Australia and bowling leg spin. Didn't bowl a lot in that test and hasn't bowled a lot since, really, but but Faulkner certainly did. Uh, He was, uh, yeah, legitimate all around. Adam, that... um did you know that Steve Smith actually originally <laughs> bowled a bit of leg spin? He was brought into really? the test more as a bowler than a batting player. Yeah, I just thought you might be interested. It's quite a curiosity. And made his first half, made his first half century in test cricket batting at nine. Did you know? Did, Did you know? know? It's unbelievable. Um, yeah. Well, Aubrey Faulkner gets a run on the final word. And I think that brings us to the end of our new numbers for this week. If you want to play Nerd Pledge, it's very easy. Go to patreon.com slash the final word. And if you do so, it means that we can keep making the show. This is a thing that we enjoy doing a lot. We're learning a lot every week. Sometimes other people are learning things as well. Sometimes they're teaching us things. It's a, 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 a lot of give and take in this relationship and we appreciate that and it means that we can also do the weekly show that we do and do the other extra bits and pieces and so on because we've got support in doing so if you'd like to get involved that'd be great that it would patreon.com forward slash the final word uh send us in a nerd pledge looking forward to tackling uh many new numbers over the next couple of weeks uh jeff let's take a break let's take a big deep breath let's talk about cricket bats and return with some revisits some confirmations some bannermans and some correspondence hi i'm ian chapel you're listening to the final word with adam collins and jeff lemon i like big bats and i cannot lie And that is what they make at Woodstock Cricket. Big bats, uh, small bats as well, long handles, short handles, long blade, maybe even short blade if you're particularly tiny and and you need a really small bat. They can do all those things because they make them custom. They talk to you, they work out what you need, and then they create and shape a bat for you. Like the wand chooses the wizard, the bat (laughs) chooses the batting wizard. Um, I've actually heard... Some crickety people refer to the the bat as as a wand. So you can even make that more literal if you want. You know, the wand can choose you. If you go to the Woodstock showroom or you can call them, email them, work it out online and get yourself a really nice cricket bat at a healthy discount. Mm. Speaking of the wand, we had some correspondence during the week pointing us towards the Urban Dictionary description for Wozla, which bit of a oh, yeah. return on last week. Um, the old Wazler. Yeah, the old Wazler. It's as you expected it would be in some parts mm-hmm. of uh, the UK for something to be called the old Wazler. Right. There's a specific part about it resembling a slinky, which I thought was which I thought was mm-hmm. quite funny. But that, the Urban Dictionary mm-hmm. contributions often are. It was explicit is what you're saying. It said this is what an old Wazler refers yeah, to. Yeah, it looks like a slinky. Okay. 
Yeah. A Woodstock cricket bat, if it is your wand, it doesn't look like a slinky. It looks no. fucking beautiful. I mean, this is this thing. The rebrand they've done over the winter months, yeah, the bat goes magnificently. It went 1-2 in the Good Gear Guide this year, which shows it's a great piece of wood. But we all know that, that cricket bats, it's, it's about the aesthetics as well. We can pretend it's not. We can say it's all about performance, but how it looks yep. does play a role when you're in the showroom. And I'm going up there, I think, the week after next to spend a day with Jono, mm. Gordon and the team to work out what the best bat for me is going to be. This is the thing. Mm-hmm. So they're really big on the customer experience. So they, they want you to go to right. the showroom. They want you to spend mm-hmm. a day or an hour or whatever it is with them to go through and work out what's going to be the best bat, best set of kit yep. for you. So that more personalised service that you don't necessarily get from the bigger companies. So I don't yeah. expect from a huge retailer with bats everywhere that they care an awful lot whether you've got the right blade or not. They just want to they just want to flog you a piece of wood. Whereas I think at Woodstock, mm. you're, you're joining a far bigger, fun family and they've been growing rapidly in the last couple of years. This new rebrand's going so well. Critically acclaimed bits of kit. It's a really great time for us to be partnering with them on the final word. I've been trying to figure out the thing about cricket bats and the weight of them. Yep. You might know more about this than, than me, but, you know, I've never had a bat that was chosen for me or, or by me, and I don't really understand how the weights work. Have you got a, got yeah, a read well, on that? Well, there's two different parts to weight. There's what they call, and this is the thing you can't measure, it's the pickup. It's how does the bat feel in the hand, uh, mm-hmm. and then there's the actual physical what does it weigh, and where the weight sits, so different types of bats. Mm-hmm. I think the T20 bat, which is called the Festival, the one that I like especially, has a lot of weight in the toe end of the bat. So if you miss Q, you'll still have a decent chance of the ball going a long way, whereas more, I suppose, mm-hmm. conventional red ball bats are designed to have the majority of the weight in the middle so you can time the ball through the covers without a particularly big right. backswing, something like that. So, yeah, I was listening to an interview that Adam Gilchrist was doing yesterday and he was referring to how different teammates of his took this very, very seriously, so much so that Mike Hussey used to carry a scale around in his cricket bag to make sure that each bat weighed exactly the right amount down to the gram. Mm-hmm. So I don't know whether he just took a set of scales that drug dealers have, maybe something like that, that did a trick. Um, we're talking about a similar quantity, I suppose. When trying imagine, to get a imagine to if, you know, like travelling through international borders, carrying a big set of electronic scales, and then he's saying, oh, I saw this in the Good Gear Guide, um, and so I picked on a, so I picked up oh, two, two pounds, nine ounces, you know, spot on. Like, are we sure that Mark Hussey is stuck in India because he was sick? Or, I mean, was he detained for other reasons? It just, yes. like, you could be getting yourself into trouble. <laughs> Too much time with the good gear guide. Uh, Jeff, to put it into this uh, sprawling conversation, I'm going to encourage you to take a look at the website, woodstockcricket.co.uk. And then if you want a bat, TFW20, it'll be in the show notes, but the code is TFW20. So on their full price kit, um, jump on there and that's a massive discount when you consider how much and these bats aren't crazily priced either that's one other point I'd make on the way through these days bats can look it's out of control isn't it some of the price tags you see on them but this doesn't feel that way it's about trying to get uh, lots of club cricketers using their kit and along with that discount 20% off TFW20 you can buy yourself a bat which looks magnificent goes beautifully and will be a great addition to your kit this season Hi, I'm Isha Gua and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Levin. 
This is the Final Word Storytime with Jeff Lehman and Adam Collins. Uh, we guess numbers. Sometimes we get them right. Sometimes we get them wrong. Uh, when we get them wrong, we have to look at them again. And that is what we are doing now with this $4.44 from Crispin Crunch that has been uh, quite the white whale over the last couple of weeks. And there have been a lot of clues. There have been some mistakes along the way. We made some. Crispin Crunch made some as well. But, Jeff, you finally got enough information together to solve it once and for all. Yes, I've, I've had some correspondence, um, a fair bit of correspondence. Crispy said, thanks for the wonderful story about Merv Hughes and the West Indies tour of 1991. Crispy said, you're on the right track with that opposition and the player being Australian. My next hint is that it's not a bowling number. And he also has something in common with Brody the Elder that was a talking point on a recent episode. Uh, so that was Chris Broad, the England batsman who was the father and still is the father of Stuart Broad. <laughs> anyway, we had a fair bit of back and forth because you know, there were some bits that were misunderstood and so on and we've had correspondence and we've had to debate over the definition of iconic uh, for various players um, <laughs> and who debuted in 1980 and thus can't be counted as 70s cricketer and so on. Uh, Crisper and Crutch, you've been a wonderful correspondent. Thank you. So eventually what we've whittled this down to is that it had to be a player who was actually in the 1984 tour of the West Indies, not the 1991 tour of the West Indies. That was that was one of the uh, the red herrings. The Jim Maxwell uh, tour, 1984. Yes. Well, they both were, but the 84 the tour, as has been detailed at length in our live shows, and I'm sure they will be in our future live shows as well after COVID. If, uh, yes, if you've been in the audience, you know what's what there. So out of all of the players who were in the 1984 squad, most of them debuted in the 80s um, or even if very early in the 80s there weren't a lot of 70s players among them um, in terms of Australia debuts the main ones who stood out were Kim Hughes and Ellen Border and so then I narrowed that down to say that if there's something in common with Broad the Elder they were both rebel tourists they both went to South Africa at a time when they should not have done to get paid for playing cricket so, Crispy's other mention was that it, it was about an iconic cricketer for whom my 7 to 14-year-old memory is of an extremely entertaining and aggressive player, and that probably doesn't stand up to an unbiased review of history, but at the time it seemed exciting. So, a player who hit boundaries often is what I was thinking. And so, the 444, I spent a lot of time looking for famous sequences of three consecutive boundaries um, that might that might fit the bill, particularly in that 1984 series. But what it comes down to in the end is that a more simple answer, over the course of a test career, Kim Hughes hit 444 fours for Australia. And that is the 444 for Crispin Crunch. Okay, okay. I was almost certain you were going to say it was Rodney Hogg there. Um, everything, everything pointed towards <laughs> Rod. Everything said that was going to be Rodney Hogg. Of course, mm -hmm. it was acceptable in the 80s, as it were, to be on those Rebel Tours, and Hogg was one of those. He was aggressive. I mean, I, I, he, was he iconic? I suppose Hughes is more certainly more iconic than, than Hogg. Mm. But he, he did hit three boundaries in an innings of 14 in one of the test matches in the 1984 
series, Rodney Hogg. Okay. And so I, I was looking at that as to whether it could be the three fours that he hit, but I'm, I'm pretty confident that um, it's it's going to be the four 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 boundaries for Kim Hughes. Thank you, Crispin Crunch, for 44, 278. This is from Sammy Dowd. Now, back in early April, um, this goes, uh, this is well and truly within the statute of limitations. Uh, we were incorrect, or I think I was incorrect in saying that Glenn Maxwell's 278 wasn't it. We just saw it was one of Sammy's favourite players and we put two and two together given that her previous pledge was about Dean Jones, Jeff, and thought that it was mm. probably going to be Glenn Maxwell in the massive double hundred he made against New South Wales back in 2017, but not to be. Yes, the um, the, the maligned Victorians area of, of nerd pledge. <laughs> Sammy sent us a message and says, it does relate to one of my favourite cricketers. He didn't have a long career but squeezed everything out of the one he did and that was enough to ring the bells for me that surely this had to be to do with sexy Ryan Harris. <laughs> if you're looking at someone who didn't have a long test career but squeezed everything out of it, well, he managed 27 tests over a period of six years after debuting at the age of 30, um, having been kept out by injury um, a lot before his debut and, and afterwards as well, and was in and out all the time, but always came back into the side and bowled just as well as he had when he'd left. So over those 27 matches, he took 113 wickets, which is a pretty phenomenal strike rate. Bowled 956 overs, conceding 2,658 runs, which is an economy rate of 2.78. Sammy Dowd. So efficient, so good, uh, Ryan Harris. Thank you, Sammy, uh, who's been a wonderful supporter of ours uh, on social media for years and years and years. It's great to have her part of Nerd Pledge as well. Okay, next up, 286, Alistair Townsend. Last week we gave this to the crowd to work out because nothing really worked. The original clue related to uh, a player being the first to the party in his own home, but he wasn't the first from his country to perform this feat, which had previously occurred in... 1991. I've already told one long story today about Colin Cowdery. I'm mindful of not doing it a second time, but this is going to take a little bit of explaining because Alistair and I have been around and around and around on this for about three days in my personal DMs. <laughs> so the hint was that, and this was a strong hint, the player had turned out three times for England and this feat happened in his only home test. In the end, we worked out that this wasn't the player's only test in England, which threw a cat amongst the pigeons somewhat. So I was down one path and, and it was very much the wrong path. You were in a dark place. <laughs> well, well, I was. When the clues aren't correct, it does, and you can kind of get caught up in your own thoughts. I thought it was going to be Richard Johnson because he was man of the match in his first test for England. It was only one that he played in England. Uh, and um, yes, I thought, well, maybe he's the only or first since 1991 to be the man of the match on debut. As it turns out, 19 players have been man of the match on debut. So mm. that wasn't going to be it. But he did do very well, I should say. Richard Johnson, six for 33 in the first innings against Zimbabwe, opening up alongside a young James Anderson who picked up two for 30 uh, down the other end. So going back to Alistair, trying to work out what this might be, I worked out that Martin Saggers was a player who had played the right number of tests at the right time, debuting at the right time and all the rest of it. And the other clue was droop to droop. And I thought, Martin mm -hmm. Saggers to sag to droop. Here we are. We've got there. Okay. Right. What is it? What did Martin Saggers do in his own place or in his own home, uh, which was the initial clue from Alistair. And it was that he took a wicket with his first ball in England. So he'd played a test match overseas, but in his mm -hmm. first 
Test match in England. He knocked over Mark Richardson at Leeds in 2004. And that's one of seven career wickets that he picked up along the way. Of course, these days, he's a, a very much an established international umpire. He's stood in many women's internationals and a handful of men's white ball games as well. He's on that second tier of the elite panel, but I'm sure he'll get a chance to, to rise the ranks in the fullness of time. The previous person, though, and I think this might be why Alistair was drawn to it, the previous person to uh, take a wicket with their first ball in England was another umpire, Little Dick Illingworth. So we had Martin Saggers and, and Richard Illingworth. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Big Dick and Little Dick. I think Little Dick's Illingworth, isn't it, from memory? And Big I, Dick's- I don't think we ever actually um, allocated who was who because we had Richard Kettleborough and Richard Illingworth umpiring together and they were referred to as Big and Little. But I'm not sure who was who or <laughs> maybe they were interchangeable. Maybe it was more a mood. You could have Big Dick <laughs> Energy or Little Dick Energy on the right. day. Um <laughs> But Kettlebrew was the one who always seemed to be texting. Uh, every time there was an appeal that he didn't like and he said no, he was always sort of looking down at his phone like he was just shooting off a message. So maybe he he had the BDE. I don't, I'm not sure. Yeah, I think generally speaking, uh, umpire Kettlebrew gives off that, that energy to me, mm. big dick energy. He's got um, the Zolio so out, sending, sending some, some saucy texts to someone who's on a raft somewhere. So in theory, that's where it should have ended, right? That's where this all should okay. have ended. Yeah, great. Martin Saggers, new beauty. The link back through to Illingworth and so be it. But this is where I'm going to rope in some correspondence from Pat Rogers. So Pat Rogers during the week, coincidentally, dropped me a mm-hmm. line about our old mate, Arthur Conningham who we talked about. The Ideas Man. The the Ideas Man, at great length a couple of weeks ago. And Pat said it was great to see him becoming a final word favourite. Thanks to his good mate, Ricardo Casamento's Nerd Pledge, Conningham is the subject of a recent biography with one of the best titles ever given, A Strange Bastard. (laughs) <laughs> among among other issues, I'd say he had some trouble with the old Wasla. So very good, very good message there from Pat it was Rogers. Like a slinky, it's like a slinky. So I went and clicked on the uh, the review of the book of a strange bastard, and I and, I, and it's a really it, only a hundred and fifty of them uh, were were made. It's by an author called Rick Smith. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing if we can get our hands on one. It's called here a strange bastard: the controversial life of Conningham the cricketer. Now. As I went through this, it goes on to explain uh, that Conningham used to say that his claim to fame as an international cricketer was that he picked up a wicket with his first ball. And going back through it, I buried the lead there the other week, Jeff. I, I didn't. I sort of didn't realise that. Yes, he, he took wickets early on, but I, I didn't note that when he got Archie McLaren, it was the first ball of the Test match. He was given the new ball, oh. first ball of the Test match, picks up Archie McLaren. So the perfect start to his Test career. Now, only twenty people have taken a wicket with their first ball in Test cricket. So the most recent Mm -hmm. for England was Illingworth, not Saggers, because Saggers wasn't on debut. He was playing his first Test in England. But Illingworth in 91 Mm -hmm. is the most recent for England. 20 of all time have done it uh, with their first ball in Test cricket. Conningham was the second to do it in Tests. The first happened to be Tom Horan, uh, who we were talking about earlier, who did so against England in 1883, so a decade before Conningham's Test match. And I went back through it because I needed to know. I needed to know this. So of the 20 who have taken a wicket with their first ball in Test cricket, have any others been doing it with the first ball of a Test match? And no. The answer is no. The one and only... The greatest ideas man to ever be an ideas man, Arthur Conningham, is the only bowler in the history of Test cricket to, on debut, take a wicket with the first ball of a test match. How do you like that? The one and only. Sounds like time for a bit of Chesney Hawks. I am the one and only. 
that's the first time we've had a, a dusty old bastard uh, get the treatment twice. But, I mean, he is the one and only. One test mm. match, and, and we know th- what happens with his son later. If you want to hear about Arthur Conningham, uh, go back about three story times and listen to it in great depth, and, and it won't disappoint. But, yes, for it to come full circle via Alistair's uh, clue, which wasn't quite right, which meant I had to spend so long with the number. Well, I mean, obviously, I'm glad it happened that way. Thank you, Alistair Townsend. Thank you, Pat Rogers. <laughs> uh, 286, consider it solved. All roads that lead to Arthur Cunningham are roads that Adam is happy to travel. Um, beautiful stuff. I, I love that, that that sense of achievement when the white whale is sighted. I think also for giving you that much enjoyment and to underline that perfection is not necessary, we're going to give Alistair the Seabus Super Performer of the Week for a fund that's as rewarding as answering that clue was for Adam. Check out cbussuper.com.au slash the final word. If you want to sort out your superannuation, you can find out if that fund is right for you by downloading a PDS from the website and always remembering the past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. The last revisit, Anna Collins with her £5.66. We said... Joe Root has a number 66 on his back and has made five double tons. Close, said Anna, almost, didn't quite get there. Instead, she said, look at the England team sheet for that first test against India a couple of months ago. Joe Root wearing the 66, Anderson wearing nine, Archer 22, Don Best 47, Rory Burns 27, Joss Butler 63, Lawrence 68, Leach 77, Pope 80, Sibley 52 and Ben Stokes 55. If you add them all together, you get 566. <laughs> there was no way in literally three years we were going to figure that out. No. So thank you for doing that for us because, yeah, <laughs> tangential does, does not begin to describe it. Uh, we love the tangential. For a while, says Anna, I did think England's first innings total was going to match their shirt total, but they overshot the mark by 12 runs and the scores went downhill from there. A break from the usual cricket stats and I was intrigued to know what connections you could draw um, Root's tally of five double hundreds was especially neat, although the venereal disease link in the last story time was more unexpected. <laughs> Thanks for playing, Anna. <laughs> Thank you, Anna. You're a gem. Now, Jeff, I've got one last revisit, but it's not from the pledger. So, uh, 906 last week from Basab Majumda, um, you went through the great Indian quintet, I suppose, of spinners that were playing mm-hmm. through the 1960s, especially. And Vivek Arcot, who was our first nerd pleasure of today. He thinks he found the extra wicket. So, Jeff, you thought it actually might have been 905, and Vivek's like, actually, look a bit harder. Mm. Yeah, so this is an interesting one. This is if you add up the wickets taken by Bishan Bedi, Chandrasekhar, Prasanna, and Venkataragavan, then we throw in Chandu Borde, who took 52 wickets from memory. Uh, that adds up to 905 wickets. Uh, but the number from Basab was 906, and that may well have been intentional rather than accidental. Vivek says, I realised that the 906 nerd pledge, which uh, may have been missing a number, could include the one test wicket taken by Sunil Gavaskar, <laughs> who we did speak about in the show last week because he was the other 
vital part of that team. He was the batting uh, heart, soul, brains and everything of that side uh, that let those spinners do their work. So he did chip in with a wicket at one particular stage and I think that's a pretty good guess, Vivek, and I'm going to um, guess that Basab will be similarly impressed with your deduction. I had a message from Basab uh, over the weekend as well, Jeff. He turned out for a game with his 13-year-old son and was upstaged by him. His son was uh, man of the match with wickets and runs in a, in a senior game. So <laughs> I suppose that's, uh, that's a real dream, isn't it, playing sport with your kid when they're old enough? And I think he, I think he said that it was, his kid, it was his son's first ever game of um, men's cricket as well or something like that. So he's had a good weekend. So that's the career wicket that Gavaska took um, a handy one as well. Got Zahir Abbas out for 96. Presumably yeah. Zahir Abbas trying to put him over the fence, I would have thought, in a draw against Pakistan in 78. So that's our revisit section. The confirmations coming in, first of all, from Dave McRobbie, uh, the $4.15 that we traced back to the number of runs that Philip Hughes made on his first test tour in South Africa in 2009. Yeah, and Dave was honest with us in his reply, saying that he never really has a plan behind his pledges, more just wanting to enjoy the essence of story time. So I I like that. Yeah, he was overwhelmed by the realisation of just how good Philip Hughes was. I knew what a loss he was in all aspects and relationships within his life, but just not what an outstanding cricketer he was. Uh, Thank you both for articulating the talent of the man. Walking along a beach near home as the sun was setting one early evening seemed to fit the narrative perfectly. Well, thank you, Dave, for uh, that number and for letting us know that you enjoyed the story. Thanks, Dave. The number from Sam Litster, the $2.01, the 2.01 that was the score that Queensland made against the touring England side during the Bodyline Tour of 1933, and particularly the 60-odd made by Lou Litster out of that 2.01 playing for Queensland. Sam said, Adam of course, nailed it. Though I did not expect the story to steer into 5G conspiracies and questionable parentage. <laughs> Lou Litster was not my great-grandfather. I've never fully understood how the terminology around second cousins thrice removed works, but in the 1880s, a Scottish couple emigrated to Townsville with their eight kids, one of whom was Lou's dad and another of whom was my great-grandfather. All right, Sam, I'm willing to do this for you because my family has a lot of historians in it and I've had to learn this stuff. If Lou's dad and your great-great-grandfather were brothers, then that means Lou and your great-grandfather were cousins, uh, and it means that Lou and your granddad were first cousins once removed. Uh, Your dad, Jim, is Lou's first cousin twice removed, and you are Lou's first cousin three times removed. How did you do that? that? Helps. How did you do? Uh, well, how do you? What? what? That, that that came way too easily to you. Like that. <laughs> like how can you? What's the difference between second cousins and removed? And the removed bit. Just give me that bit. Give me that nugget. What's okay. the difference between so, a second cousin and a cousin twice removed, or whatever? Uh, second cousins are the descendants, uh, are both descendants, okay? So if you're, you have, you have two people who are cousins, their children will be second cousins of one another. Okay. But the parent of one side of that family tree to the child of the other is a first cousin once removed. So your your cousin your 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 uncle or aunt's child okay. is your first cousin. I, right? I've been I've been getting around saying for the last four years. So my dad worked out 
that mm. his second cousin is Lockie mm-hmm. Veal of the famous Veal deal in 2003. The steak knives. The steak knives. Yep. And thus, I've been getting around saying for the last few years that I'm Lockie Veal's third cousin. Mm. This might not be true. If my dad's his second cousin, does that make him my third cousin or second cousin once removed? There'd be a big age gap between your dad and Lockie Veal, wouldn't it? Probably 30-odd um, years, 20, 20 to 30. Oh, no, maybe not. Maybe 25 years. Yeah, I mean, it's possible, but it would be more likely that your dad was, say, his first cousin once removed rather right. than his second cousin, something okay. like that. Okay. So, you know, you have siblings, they have children, those children are cousins, they're first cousins. If those cousins each have a child, their two children are second cousins to one another and first cousins once removed to <laughs> the the parent who is the, uh, the cousin of their parent. Is this the loophole that the royal family used to get away with it? <laughs> is this, is this the, uh, I don't think they need to go that far. This, I think they just go cousins are good. Yeah, they, they, they heard fine. the yeah they heard the Saints song "Kissing Cousins" and they thought, let's just go with it. <laughs> um, anyone in the royal family is allowed to marry Ben Cousins. That's the rule. <laughs> Those are the rules. Such is life. <laughs> okay, so I hope that helps, Sam. I hope I hope that's that's figured it out. So so basically, it's like how far do you go down a family tree? And if someone's roughly on your level in terms of a, a generation, then that's that's where you're a third cousin or a fourth cousin. Got it. But if someone's a generation above, or two generations above, or three generations above, that's where you get the three times removed. Is that it's three generations up the other branch of that <laughs> when, you, when, you, you can, when you finish doing this you can we've got this podcast we've got the sliders <laughs> recap podcast we've got the we've got the nanny recap podcast and then you've got the uh, the family tree with Jeff Lemon send <laughs> me your family tree and I'll tell yeah, you yeah, you send me your family tree and I'll tell you whether it's serious or not my mum found out she had three half brothers on our honeymoon as in she saw a family tree on a wall and saw these mm. three names sitting there and she's like who the fuck are these three people she probably didn't say that because she's English she said who are these three people <laughs> And then she's she said, like, "Blimey, yeah. bollocks!" And then Core. she found out that and she found out that these um, these three half brothers came around, you know, two decades yeah. before she was born. Wow, yeah, okay. I mean, and that was on, from a family her, tree on her honeymoon. Well, I mean, I'm glad in, they didn't just show up because imagine if she was on her honeymoon <laughs> and just three half brothers rock up. Well, one of them like, did. One we of, don't approve. Well, when she was younger, one of them did used to come around to the house a little bit, but she never knew. She was okay. never told that. Um, mm. My mum was born way, way, way later, and you know the wars, the war, and weird things happened. But when, um, mm. when uh, unusual things happened, rather with family units and mm-hmm. so on. But yeah, she found out as a 21 year old, I suppose, that she had these extra brothers. Yeah, that's yeah. probably well, not there cool. Was, is there it? was a lot of. Um, a lot of uh, shenanigans that went on with things like, you know, uh, families where the the oldest daughter is 17 or something and then the the mother yeah, of that child, yeah. you know, 10 years after having had her last child suddenly produces a new one and, oh, I didn't even know, it was just, <laughs> just, just popped up, you know, that kind of thing. So there was a fair bit of um, hiding of supposedly shameful secrets. Um, anyway, let's get back to Lou Litster, <laughs> who, who is the first cousin three times removed of Sam Litster. Sam says, this is a tenuous connection, but a proud one nonetheless. <laughs> You're telling me. I'm told Lou Litster was a Townsville legend, and the story goes that after scoring 299 for North Queensland against a New South Wales 11 and being selected for Queensland, 
that Bradman wanted him to play for Australia. But Lou struggled to come as far south as Brisbane even to play for Queensland, so he rejected the offer, moved back home and spent the rest of his days in Townsville. Did that snubbing draw a spurned Bradman to more suggestible characters such as Frank Ward? Frank fucking Ward, who would accede to any request. We may never know. Was Bradman's invitation remotely true? Lost to the sands of time. But if you ask anyone named Litster or anyone from Townsville, they will tell you exactly that. What a a tale. What a tale it's been. Thank you, Sam. That was great. We really enjoyed that one. As we did Matt near the Gabba last week, uh, Jeff, you were right when you said his 210 was Kyle Mayers. He said, It was great to hear the excitement in Jeff's voice when he nerd pledged, officially now a verb, the shit out of Kyle Mayers 210 not out on debut in a successful fourth innings chase. Wow. I get the feels hearing you describe those stats. It was almost as exciting as following the ball-by-ball commentary that night on Crick Info in the dark on my tiny mobile device. Thank you, Matt. He always <laughs> writes very detailed messages to both of us. And, uh, and uh, yes, and now a nerd pleasure. Thank you, Matt. Yep, nerd pledged is a verb. Um, I thought of this earlier when you mentioned, I think, the year 1986. And I, I remember, you know that, that phrase of, of being 86 like to get kicked out of a place? You ever come across that? I've not. What does it mean? Sorry. Like if you if you're 86, um, he got 86. It's being kicked out. Like, oh, right. You know, okay. mo- most commonly a bouncer or someone might 86 you. Okay. So I was I was just thinking about that because you can be 69 and you can be 86. <laughs> but are there any other numbers that you can have done to you as a verb? Like, are there any? Because I couldn't think of anything else off the top of my well, head. Well, Brian Close. Know. Brian Close at age 55 was 86. Maybe he was 69 as well. Who's to know? <laughs> 69 at 55. Was. The Brian Close story. <laughs> <laughs> what a title for an autobiography that would be. <laughs> Brian Close, a tiny dancer. <laughs> um, yeah, well, Brian would be pretty close if he was 69ing anyway. Uh, look, let's, <laughs> let's move on. Shall we? Uh, I feel we we yeah. sometimes let our um sometimes let our standards drop towards the end of the show, but we're we're trusting that it's those are week. still with it's us. It's a long way. It's a long. We do a lot of things through the week, and this is the the bit when we let our hair down a little bit. So. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, if you can think of other numbers, I mean, I suppose a nomination can be seconded and thirded, but that's it's not really the same as that's uh, ordinal progression. That's not the actual number itself. You you know. You can't be twoed or threed. You can only be seconded or thirded. So are there any other numbers? Let us know. Send us a message if, if you know of a number that you can perform as a verb. Right, confirmations are Joe Reinhard. You are spot on, Adam, when you said Brett Lee in the PM's 11 in 1999 took four for 25, uh, which was Joe's number of $4.25. It was the first day of high-level cricket that I remember going to, says Joe, because I did not have the MCG just down the road. He dominated the day and the rest of the summer, and as a fast bowler, I was hooked. Good stuff, Joe. Yes, uh, that was that was the day when Lee certainly announced himself against the touring Indians. Uh, and the last confirmation is from our old friend MJ Noster. Her 210 was to do with the women's test match between Holland and South Africa, the target that was set. And now she's off to find something else related to Kenyan cricket for us, Jeff. So MJ's telegraphing the punch of her next nerd pledge. 
<laughs> I think that may have been slightly facetious, but but we'll figure that out. Uh, the Batterman section. We're on the last bit of the show. Uh, Anthony Radford and Matthew Jones uh, brought our attention to an interesting game that took place in England where uh, Southalram Cricket Club versus the Augustinians Woodhouse Cricket Club. Now, this was in the Parish Cup Round one of the Halifax Cricket League. So, you know, this is some this is some top-level stuff here. Uh, the South Arum team made 272 in their 45 overs, you know, pretty normal stuff. A couple of half centuries, all going well. Scorecard for the Augustinians, red, naught, 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 four, naught, 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 naught. Nought. Extras, two buys. They were bowled out for six, <laughs> four runs off the bat. That was a boundary to Adnan Khan, the wicketkeeper, who must be feeling pretty good about himself. And I am hot tipping that that was off the outside edge as well. I just got a feeling that was a nick through the cordon. Uh, bowled out for six, four off the bat, and that means it's not a Bannerman because that's only 66.66% of the runs. No, it's not. And I just want to ask one question to Anthony Radford and Matthew Jones about this. So this happened on the weekend, and they tweeted us within seconds of each other to let us know. Are these scorecards going up somewhere with uh, the people? Mm. This is not the first time it's happened where in this season, this English season, where, mm. where something's happened and multiple people have immediately said to us, Bannerman, Bannerman. So are you the same person? I don't think you are. Are you mm. colluding? Whatever it is, I'm keen to know. They've got a WhatsApp group. They're chatting with each other. That could We've be it. Like s- secret listeners groups out there who are, who are just <laughs> like, let's all get them at once. That would make a lot more sense than the other scenario I just suggested. Now, um, the other Bannerman we got through was a Bannerman this week, Jeff, from Nick Dempsey. Uh, he sent a tweet through. It's one he's seen in the wild. I assume it was a game that he was playing in. He says that it was the opposition who had a Bannerman today. 75 out of 110. Now, when I saw that, and I don't know who's playing, all I can see is that 75 not out for the opener, all out 110. No concerns about the legitimacy of it on the basis that all 10 wickets were taken. But I'm like, ooh, that's going to be close. 75... Out of 110, does that get us there? Mm. It does get us there. It does get us there. Just by the barest of margins. Had it been 74 out of 110, that wouldn't have worked. So just falling in as a batterman. And we're able to Mm. check that and cross-reference it via the the chart that we have in our email accounts. But I did use the calculator and I was thrilled to see that Nick's does qualify just. The Jeremy Burke Bannerman Quotient, which is, of course, a table with every team score from 0 to 1,000 uh, and what your personal score would need to be on to be above a Bannerman threshold of 67.35%. If you want one, let us know. We can send you Jeremy's work. Yes, I think that's right. Loads of thank yous, as always, uh, to Seabus Super, to uh, Woodstock Cricket, to Bad Producer Productions, to DC for editing us, for everyone who listens and and especially to our patrons, patron.com forward slash the final word. Without you, this weekend show wouldn't be possible. Indeed, without you, not a lot of what we do would be possible. So we're grateful for it. Send us an nerd pledge. We love making this show. It's the final word. If you haven't heard the David Lloyd interview, uh, go and listen to that. If you haven't heard the Ellie Oldroyd interview, go and listen to that. They're good. We'll be back uh, next Wednesday with the weekly show and the following weekend with Storytime. Jeff Lemon, Adam Collins. We'll see you next time. Bye. I had to go about it.